Welcome to the Grace Monroe Podcast. We are a community of Jesus followers located in Monroe, Georgia, that exists to pursue God's heart for the restoration of all things. For more information about our church, visit graceformonroe.com. But in the meantime, we hope you enjoy this week's message. Well, good morning, church. Uh, always love coming back here to Monroe because things get better every time I'm here. Um, it just, just feels like the campus is coming to life in incredible ways, and it's just a privilege for me to come back and see what God is doing. Uh, can we thank the band this morning for leading us, by the way? Thank you, guys. And uh, if you guys can hear me, we may have to come back to that song that we just sang because the things that we just sang are maybe even a better articulation than anything that I'm going to say this morning. And maybe after the war, we need to come back into that moment that we just sang about uh, based on the things that God reveals to us. C.S. Lewis once said that God whispers to us in our pleasures, but yells to us in our pain. I don't know if you know it or not, but we live in a technological age. It may still be that the jocks rule the high school, but it's the geeks that rule the world in the end. And every day it feels like that there is another technological kind of thing coming out that promises to make my life more efficient and make me more joyful and happy. Gone are the days of CDs and DVDs and MP3s. Now we live in the age of not just iPods, but iPads, iPhones, notebooks. Not just the PlayStation, but the PlayStation 4, not just the Xbox, but the one, uh, Xbox One X. Every day, every year, it feels like there's some technological device that is coming out. But if you're like me, maybe the issue for you with these things is not owning them, it's actually getting them to work. Uh, because I can purchase them, but my, 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 I, my issue in life is that I'm technologically challenged, and over and over again, I'll get a new device or some kind of thing, and it will just confound me on actually how getting it to work. I read an article um, a couple years ago that said the average American, when they get a new technological device, will give that device on average about 20 minutes. If they can't figure out how to work it in 20 minutes, then they'll assume that something's wrong with the device and return it. The interesting thing about the article, though, is it said that most of these things that are returned, actually over 50% of them, actually really do work. That the issue wasn't with the device, the issue was with the user. I want to bring that picture up this morning because I think the way that we relate to technology also demonstrates the way that too often you and I relate to God with pain in our lives. We give God about 15 or 20 minutes, and if you haven't worked it out in 15 or 20 minutes, God, then I'm out. There must be something wrong with the device. This morning I want to talk to you about how to follow God when life falls apart. How do you follow God when you experience deep pain and suffering in your life? 
There may not be a more crucial topic for personal discipleship than how we deal with our pain. See, pain is the great divider. It makes great disciples, but it also makes great atheists. Talk to someone who has a deep faith, and more times than not, you will find someone who has gone through deep pain in their life. Find someone who has rejected their faith, and more times than not, you will find a story of deep pain in their life. We don't know what to do with our pain. And I want to admit this morning that I come at this from a limited vantage point. I've dealt with pain in my life. I've seen dreams dashed through injury. I've seen covenantal relationships torn apart. I've built things up only to see them crash down. But in all honesty, you know, there are people in the world who've experienced way more pain than I have. People living in incredible poverty and captivity and bondage. And, and part of why I love the Scripture is because it, prevent, it presents to us an unlimited vantage point. It allows our limited vantage points to be caught up in an unlimited vantage point that begins to speak to our lives in incredible ways. It's one of the reasons I read the Scriptures, because I need a better vantage point than my own. And so this morning, wherever you find yourself in this journey of pain, the journey for pain for us is not about if, it's about when. Wherever you find yourself in your journey of pain, my prayer would be that the unlimited vantage point of the Scripture would speak to you, because in Revelation chapter 2, where we're going to be at this morning, with the church at Smyrna, There are four revelations that I think God wants to give us in four verses that challenge four big deceptions in our lives when it comes to pain. Well, I won't generalize it for you. I'll tell you, generalize deceptions in my life. See, when I get into pain and I'm following God, there are a couple things that come to my mind in those painful moments. The first is, God, you must not see this. Or if you see it, you must not care. Maybe my suspicion is you're actually enjoying it. Second kind of thought that I have when I get into pain is, not only do you not care, but I think you caused this. I'm pretty sure you could have stopped this from happening, and not only that, I'm pretty sure you're the author of my pain. I mean, is that that too real, too honest? I, I hope it's okay for a pastor to have those kinds of thoughts, because those are my thoughts when it comes to pain. Not only that, thirdly, I think I'm defined by my pain, that this pain that I'm in is the sole defining piece of who I am. And finally, I have a tendency to think, this pain will never end. So God, you don't care about it, you probably caused it, this defines me, and it's never going to end. I don't know if you've ever had those thoughts. 
I don't know if you've ever been on the brink with God. I don't know if you've ever walked through the questions of pain that make you wonder whether God exists or not. But that is the kind of pain that we find the church of Smyrna in in Revelation chapter 2. We are walking through a series called the Letters to the Churches through the Grace family of churches, all throughout our different churches. Um, we're going to be walking through Revelation 1 to 3. Brian started the series last week, but part of what we're doing that we always do in the summer is different pastors from different churches come and share in one series. It lets the pastors take a little bit of a, a break in some ways uh, in regard to just simply studying, but also allows them to work in their leadership responsibilities throughout the summer. But it also gives us a chance to hear from other voices in each local church for the Grace family. And this summer, we decided to do a series on the book of Revelation, chapters 1 through 3, on the seven letters to the churches. These were letters written to the ancient world churches that were the kind of first churches to emerge during a season of great persecution and difficulty. They were a family of churches, so to speak, and John, in the revelation that God gives him, has some words for Je from Jesus for each of these, these, these churches. And so, we're as a family saying, maybe these words in our present difficulty, maybe these words in our present situation on the heels of COVID, wondering whether people are going to come back to church or what's going to happen in the middle of this whole thing, maybe there's some words for us as a grace family of churches we could hear from the original family of churches that Jesus would want to share with us. And so this morning, we're diving into the church at Smyrna, and Smyrna was an incredibly rich city. It was a city that was in competition with Ephesus underneath the Roman Empire for like the, the first kind of city. It was an incredibly rich seaport and known for all kinds of things. And yet the believers there in Smyrna are about to give up on their faith because they are in incredible poverty, and they're in incredible persecution. And it's in this moment that John gives this revelation of the voice of Jesus, and here's the letter to the church at Smyrna. It says this, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last that died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those they say that are Jews and are not, but are, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Four verses, but four revelations that this morning I want to call your attention to. And I honestly just want to have a conversation with you in the midst of either the pain you're currently in, the pain you have been in, or the pain you will go through and remind you of some things that we have a tendency to forget 
when we are in pain. The first one is this. It's a revelation of Jesus. Brian said it last week. Every one of these letters starts with a particular revelation of Jesus to that church. And the revelation of Jesus here in verse 8 is that he is the first and the last who died and came to life. A church on the brink of potential death, the revelation of Jesus that they are given is one who has been through what they are facing. That that Jesus, and and God in particular, uh, uh, is not immune to our suffering. He hasn't dropped his glasses on the ground and, you know, fumbling for his glasses, can't see it. He's not, you know, busy reading on his iPhone. He's not distracted. But I love that first word. He says in in, in verse 9, I know. I know. Jesus is the first and last. He's the one who's been through death and come back to life. And he says, I know what you're going through. Let me ask you this question. What what do you think about when you think about God? A.W. Tozer said the most important thing about a person is what that person thinks about when they think about God. When you think about God, what do you think about? Oftentimes when you ask this question to people, they may have a picture of God as like a distant grandfather, someone who cares but isn't really connected to your world. They think about God as maybe a cosmic giant who set things in the motion but is disconnected. They think about God as a vending machine. We think about God as a vending machine all the time where we put our dollars in trying to get what we want. And if we don't get what we want, we start shaking the machine, right? Because we we put our money in and, you know, we deserve to get that Twix bar. And if it doesn't come out, then, you know, I'm taking my baseball bat to the vending machine, right? Philip Yancey, in his book, Disappointment with God, probably one of the most formative books that I've read in my life in dealing with pain, says all throughout the Old Testament, one of the pictures of God that you see is that he is a wounded lover. He he actually writes Disappointment with God, the book, when one of his friends had had a book on Job that he was releasing, then all of a sudden his friend's life totally falls apart and his friend gives up on God and he holds himself up into a cabin in Colorado asking the questions in regard to pain. Is God distant? Is God silent? Is God uninvolved? And he reads the Bible straight through, and as he reads the Bible straight through, Philip Yancey says, it's like God was speaking back, that we're the ones who always think that God is distant, that we're the ones who always think that God's removed, that we're the ones that always think that God's silent. But God is the one all throughout the prophets who is saying, I'm not the one who stopped talking. You're the one who stopped listening. I'm not the one who's moved. You've moved. And and that God himself feels the pain of a wounded lover. He doesn't know whether he wants Israel to return or get out of his life forever, that God feels our pain. We live in a world today where people begin to think, well, if you haven't been through my situation exactly, you don't have anything to say to me. Have you experienced that? Well, what I want to tell you from the good news of Scripture is this. 
God has been through your pain. He's been beyond your pain. In the person of Jesus, he understood emotional pain. He knows what it feels like to be betrayed. He knows what it feels like to be denied. He knows what it feels like to be rejected. He's felt physical pain. He's got the beatings and the bruisings. He's been cussed at and crucified. He's got the spiritual pain. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Exodus chapter 2, when the people of God have been in slavery for over 400 years, and their cries are going up to God. They're wondering what God is doing. And, and, and I love these verses. These are verses I come back to all the time in my life. Uh, verses 23 through 25. It says, During the many years the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to the Lord. So here's what God's been doing. It says, verse 24, And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. There's our word again. That in the midst of Israel's pain, God saw. He heard. He remembered. And he knew. He, he saw their pain. He wasn't distracted. He heard. He, he didn't need to turn his hearing aid up. He, he, he could hear. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He wasn't having a senior moment. He wasn't suffering from amnesia. And then it says he, he knew, and, and, and that word knew is he not just sympathized with, he empathized with, he placed himself in their shoes. In other words, what the revelation of Jesus tells us is that there is nowhere that you will set your feet in pain that God hasn't already walked. And that God doesn't just sympathize with your pain. And he definitely doesn't enjoy your pain. But the wounded healer, God of the universe, empathizes with your pain. Jesus looks at this church that's in incredible pain and says, I've been there. I get it. Second revelation, it's not just a revelation of Jesus, it's a revelation of circumstance, of life. Here in verses 9 through 11, he tells them in no uncertain terms that life is filled with both good and evil. That there's an adversary, twice, it's mentioned here, the adversary of Satan or the devil is the one who is behind the things that they are going through. And that Satan often uses principalities and powers, but he also uses people. And that's a hard thing to swallow because I have to ask myself the question, when's the time that he's used me to cause pain to other people in the world? 
But it also reminds me at a very stark level that in the midst of our pain, that our pain isn't brought on by God, but that we live in a real world where there is real good and there is real evil. Now, this isn't dualistic kind of thinking because in the end, it's going to be domination. So it's not like there's just, you know, one that's just as strong as the other. But it is a reminder that the real pain and the real evil that you experience is real pain and real evil. And that we live in a world where not everyone is looking out for your good. Where not everyone is trying to give you life. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give you life and give it life to the full. That God, who is the wounded healer of the universe, is also a God who desires to give good gifts of life to his people, but there is also an adversary, a satan, a devil in the world that is trying to wreak havoc on your life, and everywhere he goes, he roars about like a, he roams about like a roaring lion trying to dismantle the things that God is trying to give you. And if you live long enough, you will experience the catalytic damage of a broken world that Satan is continuing to corrupt that will invade your life. Now, it's worth noting that when we talk about pain and we talk about brokenness, that there is a difference between suffering and consequence. Consequence is when my life falls apart because of bad choices that I make. There's some pain that is brought into my life because of things that I do. Suffering is when my life falls apart because of good choices that I make. So consequences when my life falls apart because I'm going my own way and doing my own thing and not following God. Suffering is when my life falls apart when I'm making good choices and I'm following God and I'm not choosing brokenness, but brokenness is choosing me. And it's this kind of thing that Jesus is talking into, and he wants the people here in Smyrna to know that God is not the author of your pain. But he is a great opportunist in it. Here in Smyrna, people are facing persecution. There's the Jews that he talks about as the synagogue of Satan there in verse 9 and 10 that are slandering them and taking their stuff from them. They're poor in a city of incredible wealth. And it's one thing to be poor, but it's another thing to be poor in a city that's wealthy, where you can see everything that you don't have. And the Gentiles are persecuting him because Smyrna is the capital of empire, uh, emperor worship. And the tendency is to bow your knee to Caesar rather than to bow your knee to Jesus. And so the Christians here are in the middle of incredible persecution from both the Jews and the Gentiles. And Satan, God is saying, is behind it all. So the revelation of this, life is filled with good and evil. God is not the author of your pain, but he is an opportunist in the middle of your pain. In other words, God's not the one causing your pain, but God will never let pain go to waste in your life. He meets you right in the middle of it. 
I remember when I uh, had young kids, my kids are growing up now, so I've got a senior in high school that's going to college this year and two 14-year-olds, but I remember when they were young, we would go to the water park, and I love going to the water park where they want to ride the water slides and different things like that, but one of the things I always wanted to do was get in the wave pool. And we'd get in the wave pool, and if you've ever been in the wave pool at one of the water parks, you know that when everything's calm, it's just kind of like a normal pool. And during those calm times, my kids would often swim away from me, and they enjoyed the pool. But you know one of the things that I, I it did enjoy as a dad when the waves would start? My kids would always find their way back to me. My kids would get close in the middle of the waves. Now, it wasn't me that moved when things were calm. I was still in the same place that I was at in the wave pool. It's just that they had kind of ventured out when things were calm. But when things picked up, my kids got close. C.S. Lewis says that pain is a gift. And that if we will receive it, it will bring us back to God. If you talk to a saint to have a deep relationship with God, you're going to find scars in their life. Moments of pain where they chose not to swim away from God, but they chose to swim to God, and they found something about God in the middle of their pain that they couldn't find in any other place. God is not the author of your pain, but he is a great opportunist in it. So we have a revelation of Jesus that God empathizes with our pain. He doesn't enjoy it. We have a revelation of life, that we live in a world of good and evil, and that there is an adversary that wants to still kill and destroy, but we also have a good God who wants to give us good gifts, and that he doesn't author our pain, but he's an opportunist. The third piece is this, we have a revelation of ourselves. And the revelation of ourselves is that there is more in you, in me, in us, than we think there is. Do you catch the language of this passage here, both at the beginning and at the end? He says, you, I know your poverty, but you are rich. He says, I know you think you're poor, but I got to tell you, when I look inside you, you're rich. And at the end, he says, I know you think you're losing. But in the end, you're winning. I know you feel like you're being overcome, but in you is an overcomer. See, as we come to the revelation of Jesus and the revelation of life, we also get a revelation of ourselves. That as we go through pain in our lives, there's more in us than we know there is. There's more in us than we think there is. That Jesus has more faith in you than you have in him. I know you know that you should have faith in Jesus, but here's the question I have for you this morning. Do you know that Jesus has faith in you? And that although he didn't cause your pain, he will come to you in the midst of it, not eliminate it right at once, because as an opportunist in the middle of it, he wants to see what's in you. He wants you to see what's in you that he sees in you that you don't see in you. That you have more in you than you think you do. 
And here he says, here's the deal, I'm going to limit it. It's going to be 10 days. And it's probably a shout out to Daniel and Babylon who went through 10 days when they were in the midst of exile there of testing. He says, there's going to be a test that Satan's going to be using to kind of slander you, but I want you to know that I'm going to use that test to prove to you who you really are. See, tests are not given to show you what you don't know and who you are not. That's what we think of tests, right? Tests are given to show you what you do know. Every good teacher knows they give you a test not to show you what you don't know, but to show you what you do know. Not to show you who you aren't, but who you are. That the testing is going to prove who you are and what you know. You can't have a testimony without a test. You can't have a story without a great struggle. And that God is going to limit it. He's not going to let it go on forever, but he's going to push you to the limits in the middle of that limited persecution so that you can see who actually is inside of you. That there is more in you than you think there is. I love this great story. Um, it's in Sam Wheatley's book, Pondering the Journey, but it's a historical story that you find in many places. He talks about in 1463, the members of the city of Florence, Italy, decided they needed a monument to enhance their city. So they commissioned a sculptor to carve a giant statue that would stand in front of City Hall. Someone thought that it needed to be a biblical character that would magnify the beauty and strength of the city. So they approached the sculptor known as Agostino Deduccio, who agreed to their terms. Deduccio went to the quarry near Carrara and marked off a 19-foot slab to be cut from the white marble. However, when the slab was cut, he cut the, the slab too thin, and when the block was removed, it fell, leaving a deep fracture, fracture down one side of the marble. When the slab came to Deduccio, he declared the stone useless and demanded another one. But the city said, we don't have enough money to pay for that, as the city always does, right? <laughs> Consequently, the gleaming block of marble lay on its side for the next 38 years, a source of embarrassment for all concerned. Then in 1501... The council approached another citizen, the son of a local official, asking of him if he would complete the ambitious project. Fortunately for them, this young man was named Michelangelo. He was just 26 years old, filled with energy, skill, and imagination. Michelangelo locked himself inside a workshop behind the cathedral to chisel and polish away on the stone for three years. When the work was finished, it took 49 men five days to bring it to rest before City Hall. Archways were torn down, narrow streets were widened. The people from across Europe came to see the 14-foot statue of David relaxing after defeating Goliath. It was even more than the city fathers had envisioned. The giant stone had been transformed from the massive, fractured waste of rock to a masterpiece surpassing the art of either Greece or Rome. God is not the author of your pain, but he is an opportunist in the middle of it. I love what Michelangelo would later talk about in regard to his sculpting. He said, every block of stone has a statue inside of it. And it is the task of the sculptor to discover it. Talking about one of his statues, he said, I saw the angel in the marble and carved until I set him free. 
There are these other statues that he's done that are called the prisoners, where you see that the, they wonder whether he finished the, the project or not, because you see the, the figure coming out of the stone, but part of the stone is still there. But in every one of those pictures of the prisoners, the, the, the image that's trapped in the stone is trying to break free from it. Another thing he said is that the sculpture is already complete within the marble block. Before I start my work, it's already there. I just have to chisel the superfluous material away. I want to suggest to you, God in Jesus has already done a work in you. It's just captured in stone. And part of what pain does is it takes its chisel and hammer out in our lives. And at moments we can feel like it's going to destroy us, but really it is setting us free to see who God's already made us to be. That you are not defined by your pain. That your pain is not the determiner of you. That there's more to you than the pain that you're going through. And that part of what God does in the middle of this, he limits it, but he lets it do its work so that you can see the you that he sees. So that you can see inside of you is an overcomer and that you are really rich. And, and, and you know this. You know this. You've seen it in other people. I mean, you ever been on a mission trip where you think you're going to a country that is impoverished and you think you're going to bring them something? You realize, no, actually, they brought you something. You know, it's possible to have nothing and have everything at the same time. And it's possible to have everything and nothing at the same time. You know that in your life, the road to freedom at first looks like bondage sometimes, and the road to bondage at sometimes looks like freedom. That the road to life sometimes looks like death, and the road to death at times looks like life. And that what you might be embarrassed about today because it feels like a 38-year project piece of marble that's been laying on a stone. And by the way, we got to, I mean, this, this building is a picture of that illustration. I mean, I, I'll never forget Brian and Sadie's heart when they were, you know, thinking about this campus. Brian's words were, it's been an eyesore in this community for years. It's been a broken piece of marble laying on its side for years. And we want to come back into that, and we want to, we want to let the, the statue out of the marble, so to speak, so that even in the architecture here, people in the city can see our heart, that we are pursuing God for the restoration of all things. And as they see the statue come out of the marble here, that maybe they would believe that there's a statue inside of them in the middle of the marble that they're caught in, and that God's heart to restore all things, that they would even see through the architecture of what is happening at this campus. And every time I come back to this campus, I just look at it, and I just, I just see the statues coming out of the marble. But it's only as good, it's only as good as it gives hope to everyone who drives the roads around here that there's more here than just a nice architecture or a nice statue, but it's a picture of what God wants to do in their lives. 
There is more to you than you think there is, and there's more to the person that you're looking at across the road and across your yard and across the street than you think there is. Final, fourth revelation. Not just a revelation about Jesus, not just a revelation about life, not just a revelation about ourselves, but a revelation of the future. He says it is limited. And that in the end, there's a victory coming. That after 10 days, even if you die, God is redeeming all things. Sometimes he does that through restoration, and sometimes he does that through resurrection. Sometimes he takes things that are broken and makes them beautiful again, and sometimes things go through death so they can actually go to life. God, though, is restoring all things, and we're pursuing God's heart for the restoration of all things. And here, Jesus is saying, I need you to know, there's not just a revelation about me I want to share with you. There's not just a revelation about your circumstance that I want to share with you and life that I want to share with you. There's not just a revelation about you. I want to share with you, but there's a revelation of the future, and that is this. You may be in this moment where you're looking around wondering whether it's all going to become good, but God in the end is making all things new. He's making all things right. He's turning every wrong right. He's making every broken thing beautiful. And if you'll hold on with him, the picture he gives there is this crown of life. Smyrna was a town where there were uh, games that it, the winners would get this, this, this wreath, this crown of victory. He says, you need to know that when you travel with me through your pain, there's a future that is coming, and that in that future, I am bringing life to every dead space and beauty to every broken space. I'm going to dare to repeat one illustration as I close up today. Uh, it's an illustration that I often give when I'm speaking of an experience I had with my daughter Emma when she was little. I, I get a chance to travel and speak and coach and consult different churches, and it means I'm on the road. I mean, a lot of days in the year. I'm probably on the road, you know, this year is probably around 120 to 150 days I'm on the road, and I'm helping churches around the country just do different things and doing coaching and consulting and stuff. And I usually like that, that to be about 90 to 120. You know, this year's a little bit crazy in the middle of all the things that we're experiencing. But several years ago, I'd been on the road for a season, and I'd been on the road for like two weeks at a time. Whenever I'm gone that long, I always want to come home and spend some time with my kids. That is just what we call, you know, when Emma was young, Daddy Emma Day. And so I would look at Emma when I came home. I said, you know, we're having Daddy Emma Day today. You can do anything you want to do. What is it that you want to do tomorrow when we have Daddy Emma Day? And she looked at me and said, Dad, I want to go to Frankie's Fun Park. Uh, because Frankie's Fun Park has putt-putt, and she loved putt-putt. And uh, uh, she would say, Dad, I, I want to go to Frankie's Fun Park. And I'd say, yeah, Emma, tomorrow we'll go to Frankie's Fun Park. We'll do whatever you want to do. But then she, she would look at me, and, and in this moment she said, but is it open? And, you know... The reason she was asking that question is because sometimes when mom and dad didn't want to go to Frankie's Fun Park, we would say that Frankie's is closed, right? I said, yeah, yeah, it's going to be open tomorrow, and it's going to be great. And so we, about 12 o'clock, we, you know, we get in the car, and we go down. So we're going to go down at 1 o'clock, we'll go, we'll go, and we'll go to Frankie's Fun Park. But we're going to go to Taco Bell beforehand because Emma liked tacos and daddy liked tacos as well. And so uh, we would go to Frankie's we go to Taco Bell, and we're eating tacos, and it's a good day. We get in the minivan because, yes, your life will go through the minivan at some point in your life. You could say it won't, but it will go through the minivan. We've got the princess songs on. We go to Taco Bell. We're eating our tacos. We're eating there. And a kid walks in, an eight-year-old kid walks in, he points right at me and says, cool hair, dude. 
It's amazing what an eight-year-old can do for your self-esteem in a moment like that, you know? I mean, and we're having good tacos. We get back in the, in, the, in the van, and we go down to Frankie's Fun Park, and when I pull in the parking lot to Frankie's Fun Park, there's a big sign that says, Frankie's is closed at 2 o'clock because there was a party that had rented it out, and, they, and, and I guess it would have been my power to kind of scale the wall and join the party, but I thought, you know, we need to let them have their time. We're going to come back at 2 o'clock. And so we start pulling the minivan out of Frankie's Fun Park at 1 o'clock, and my daughter, Emma, who's about four years old at the time, is just bawling, crying. Because she doesn't get, I'm trying to talk to her, hey, it's going to be open at 2, but she doesn't get time. She doesn't understand that. All she knows is that Dad promised we were going to Frankie's, Frankie's Fun Park, and now we're pulling out, and we haven't been. We go to my wife's sister, Christy's house, for an hour, and Emma's just kind of uncontrollable, because it looks like in this moment, Dad's made promises that aren't coming true. But eventually, we, we get through that moment, we come back at 2 o'clock, and Frankie's Fun Park is open, and we go in the Frankie's Fun Park, and we play putt-putt, because Emma loves to play putt-putt, and I'm helping her putt, and she makes like five hole-in-ones, because for, for her, it's all about making the hole-in-one. And I'm putting after her, and I'm not making anything. She looks at me and says, I'm a much better putter than you are, Dad. We, we get out of Frankie's Fun Park at about, you know, 3.30, we go get some ice cream, we go to Brewster's, and we get Brewster's ice cream with sprinkles on it because that's what she loves, and we're in the minivan about 4 o'clock on the way home, and Kim, my wife, calls and talks about the day and says, well, let me talk to Emma, and I hear Emma in the back seat of the minivan, and she tells her mom, I have the greatest dad in all the world. Now, that's not what she was saying at 1 o'clock. At 1 o'clock, she's got all kinds of daddy issues. At 1 o'clock, she thinks dad's made some promises that dad's not going to keep. At 1 o'clock, she looks around, and everything looks devastating. But at 4 o'clock, she looks back and says, I have the best dad in all the world. This is what the revelation of the future tells us, that it may read 1 o'clock on our watch, that there may be moments when we look around, and we've got all kinds of daddy issues, that in our pain, our faith might be threatened, we might even for a moment give up on our faith. But as Christians, what we believe is not just a revelation of who Jesus is, and not just a revelation of what life is, and not just a revelation of who we are, but a revelation of the future. And the revelation of the future is this, though your clock reads one o'clock, four o'clock is coming. And at four o'clock, you're going to look up and say, we have the best dad in all the world, because not even death, not even death has the last word on life. These are the words to the church at Smyrna. Let anyone who has an ear hear them and be blessed. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you today with our pain, with the pain of our past, the pain of our present, and the pain of our future. With the thoughts that we have in our mind that pain causes, but a revelation of what you are saying. So may your words be that mighty waterfall that Brian was talking about yesterday. May it be the sword that dissects bone and marrow. May it redeem our pain through you, the resurrected Jesus. May we join in that resurrection with you today.
In your name, amen. Thanks for listening. Once again, our mission at Grace Monroe is to pursue God's heart for the restoration of all things. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, go to graceformonroe.com connect. Also, if you felt blessed by our ministry and want to partner with us financially, everything you need to know about giving is online at graceformonroe.com give. We hope you have a wonderful week. Be blessed.